welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Don Melton is adamant that he is not the father of the Safari web browser or of WebKit. But lots of people say that he is, so even though I will respect his wishes, I'll just say simply that he's a web browser legend. In this episode, not only does Don tell us a lot of great stuff about the history of browser technology, about Safari, WebKit, even Apple, and a lot more, since he was also a Netscape employee, we get some more great details about that company, especially in its later stages. Please enjoy this excellent conversation with Don Melton. Don Melton, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Well, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. And uh, just a little shout out to uh, Glenn yes. uh, Fleischman, who uh, was matchmaker for us. Absolutely. Um, suggested you. And I'm glad he did, because I've actually listened to you on a couple podcasts now, and you're naturally good with gab. Uh, sometimes it's like pulling teeth, and then people like you just uh, love to tell stories. So this is going to be a good one. Yeah, um, your 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 problem, Brian, is going to be shutting me up. <laughs> I'm telling I, you that right now. I I have I I I think the longest I've ever done is an hour and a half. So if we go beyond that, then I'm going to ask you just to come back for round two. <laughs> anyway, Alrighty. um, so we were talking. You know, I'm approaching 150 episodes, and basically, when I try to get into people's backgrounds, it either breaks down into, oh, I got into tech because you know, man, I was into it since I was a kid. And then the other half, you can never tell. Like people come at, at tech from all directions. And I I I read that uh, when you were really young, uh, you were into into drawing, and and you were even an illustrator for underground comics. Yeah, that's correct. I I uh, from a very early age, uh, I all I wanted to be was a comic strip and later a comic book artist uh, because I guess when I was about four years old and my mother was trying to keep me occupied so she could get something done. Uh, she uh, gave me an actual pencil uh, and paper and set a, I don't know, it was a pewter horse or something down on the coffee table and said, draw that, hon. And I did and surprised the hell out of my mom and my dad. And it was like, wow, that actually looks like that pewter horse. You can draw curious. what you see. Yeah, I could always draw what I see. It's like uh, my – superpower and uh and my parents uh actually encouraged me they was like and when my sister found out my older sister she was like oh finally i can talk this knucklehead into drawing all my stories for me because she was a she wanted to be a writer and uh so my parents got me uh drawing lessons from a professional artist later on when i was around seven or eight and i actually learned things like uh, perspective chiaroscuro and uh, uh, lots of stuff. And then, uh, I started doing really bad, uh, cartooning and got into the underground, um, comics, uh, world, uh, which is funny. Uh, today is a significant day. Not only is it the, uh, anniversary of the moon landing that I watched live with uncle, uh, 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 Walter, uh, when I was a kid, uh, but it's also the day the San Diego Comic-Con starts. Mm -hmm. And I haven't been to a Comic-Con in like 30 years, but 
uh, I think I was at the uh, the second or third Comic Con uh, back in the early '70s, back when it was at the old El Cortez Hotel in San Diego. And for me, as a a budding comic book artist, that was like so cool because I got to meet you know some of my heroes like Jack Kirby and people like that. <laughs> so even though I no longer attend Comic Con, and it's not really Comic Con anymore, it's like a yeah. It's MediaCon, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I it still means something to me. So. Well, I heard you say, I think it was on another podcast, that you you stepped away from comics right before they really took off. So there could have yeah, been that could have uh, been your your career there. Uh, yeah. Well, I've I've always had really really good insight into what will do me absolutely no good financially. Um, and you know, I'll take that path every time. It seems like, um, uh, thank God I married well and, you know, my, uh, and my wife was around to slap me around a few times, but I think if you work in the tech business and especially here, uh, in what we used to say the Valley, but now you say the Bay area, cause so much of it is San Francisco or the peninsula now. Uh, you've probably, and if you've been at it as long as I have, you've lost two or three fortunes along the way. <laughs> if, uh, if you haven't, you don't have any good stories. So. Right. Cause you interviewed at that company and, oh, I didn't know that was going to become Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, there's just shit like that that happens all the time. So, well, but you did, um, you, you, you're professionally, you did start out drawing because you became a, a professional newspaper artist. Yeah, uh, because that's what I could get paid doing. Uh, I mean, you couldn't get paid uh, drawing comic books back then with uh, unless you went to New York City and you worked for Marvel or DC or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any money to get out of the Imperial Valley. Do you know where the Imperial Valley is, by the way? I actually don't know geography beyond the Bay Area in California at all. <laughs> I know LA oh. south of San Francisco, but... <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, the Imperial Valley is, uh, I, I like to affectionately call it the leg pit of California. Mm. It's, um, that's where I grew up. Uh, it's a very, very hot place. Usually vies for Death Valley and Phoenix and hell holes like this for the hottest place in uh, the U.S. every day of the year. So getting uh, into still... like Arizona adjacent is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, uh, it's. It's south of Palm Springs, north of Mexicali, west of Yuma, Arizona, and uh, east of San Diego. And it's a, a great deal of it is below sea level. It's actually a big agricultural uh, and drug smuggling uh, community. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's its two claims to fame. Mm -hmm. With 24% unemployment the last time I checked. Anyway, that's where I was from. And so opportunities were few. And when the local newspaper wanted to hire me, I was like, sure, I'll do that. Uh, you know, at least I could draw something and get paid for it. And so I got into um, newspapers down there um, doing uh, not strips, but uh, illustrations for column, uh, for a regular daily column. I would do mm -hmm. an amusing cartoon for that. I did editorial cartoons. I they even loaned me out to the advertising group to do illustration and, and stuff there. And uh it was a great learning opportunity. I mean you learn <laughs> you learn how to draw quickly. 
and get something done on deadline. Mm. And later on, when I moved out of the Imperial Valley um, to do my detour through uh, religion to get a biblical studies degree, it's a long story, <laughs> uh, and moved up to Orange County, I got a job at the Orange County Register. Uh, similar thing. I was like uh, their art department there uh, as they clawed their way out of uh, – um, well, not completely out of the John Birch Society, but into a little respectability there. And that was almost until I worked at Apple years later. That was the longest job I ever had. I worked at the Orange County Register just a few months uh, shy of uh, uh, eight years. And I am I pioneered their computer graphics effort. Right. Uh, so that's that's your entree into tech. That th This is your on-ramp. So what is this, early 80s? Uh, yeah, this would be, uh, let's see, early eighties. And, um, so this is right when desktop publishing with PCs and, and graphics with, on PCs is, is just getting started. Oh, and by just getting started, yeah, you mean like next month it's just getting started. <laughs> I hadn't really started. Um, so I, I, um, I wanted to, we got a, um, an ATEX front end system at the Orange County Register, and I started uh, playing with it. And I found out that there were, um, I don't know if you know much about uh, typesetting systems. The old typesetting systems, this kind of thing was impossible. Our, the old, our friend like, Glenn can, can tell us all about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, he knows this stuff. Uh, but the register was moving from what's called hot type to cold type. And so they had. Um, uh, software that would allow you to actually run uh, um, they they had computers that would actually spit out the type you know in columns that you would cut apart and paste up and then photograph and then turn into plates um, uh, to print and I found out that these uh, computers uh, could draw lines hmm. you know horizontal and vertical lines and I was doing and they could even draw circles if you if you coached them the right way. And so uh, I was doing a lot of not just cartoons and illustrations, fewer, fewer cartoons over time. But I was doing you know, what's called information graphics. You do maps and graphs and charts and things like this. And this was the the budding of information graphics back then. And so I thought, man, what if I could like convince these things to do that? Uh, and so I... I snuck around and snuck in and um, I didn't know what I was doing I, uh, and got some of the machines to do that uh, kind of stuff. But they didn't like me doing that kind of stuff, hacking the computer. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, I got it to draw graphs. It at least proved to my boss that I could do that. And I thought, I, I need to do more of this stuff. This is exciting. I want to get into computer graphics. So I convinced my dad to loan me enormous summer uh sum of money uh five grand and it was like just shy of five grand and i bought that's that's I, 1980 whatever money five grand yeah yeah it's an enormous amount of money i i can't believe i conned him into it and so i bought a full apple II computer with the works you know 48k of ram um dual disk drives uh a color monitor and all kinds of other stuff. And I thought, man, I'm going to go to town. I'm going to change the world. And uh, 
two weeks after I got it, I thought, oh, my God, I made the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, how am I going to pay my dad back all this money and tell him that you know I'm not really using it? So it languished um, on the shelf for several months uh, until I got sick one three-day weekend, and uh, I didn't have anything else to do. And I, sh- I was sharing a house uh, with three other guys in college, uh, and uh, they didn't want me to come out into the, the common area of the house because I was like infectious or something. So I just sat in my room, and uh, back in those days, they gave you programming manual, manuals with the computers, and one of the manuals was like AppleSoft Basic. And so I, I taught myself AppleSoft Basic on Saturday morning through the evening, and then uh, Sunday morning, I bombed one of my programs into the machine language monitor, and I went, oh, what are all these funny numbers with letters in them, uh, you know, hexadecimal. And then I taught myself that. And then I, by the time Monday rolled around, I taught myself uh, very simple machine language programs, mm-hmm. programming. And I was stuffing um, code into data statements in BASIC, AppleSoft BASIC, and then calling them through the ampersand vector. For all you old Apple II geeks, you'll know what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. And and I was just having fun. I was just dinking around. And I didn't know that you weren't supposed to be able to do that or learn that that quickly. And I didn't really realize it um, until several months later when I ran to, into a friend of mine who was taking uh, classes at another a nearby college. And he had a computer programming class. And I thought, wow, how exciting. And by this time, I had you know, I'd learned uh, Pascal and I was starting to learn C and forth on my own. You know, I just couldn't get enough of it with my computer. Uh, and um, I looked, I said, can I look at one of your books? Because we were eating lunch. Uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. But it's really hard. I'm like stuck on this problem here. And I looked at the book and it was just like so simple. I mean, and I looked at the guy's code, and he, uh, he was a real nice guy, but he couldn't write a for loop to save his life. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm on to something. <laughs> and so at the same time, I was uh, trying to drag my, uh, my Apple II to work with me and try to do graphics with it and, you know, print them out on my uh, black and white dot matrix mm-hmm. printer and then do color separation with it later on to create effects. You could only do this sometimes for things when you wanted a real pixelated experience, but I managed to pull it off a few times and my boss let that through. But, you know, it w- you were never going to replace all the other drawing you were doing by then. And then, um, then a year away from that, the Macintosh came out and I knew that that was it. That was where everything was going. See, I was, uh, you know, I, I was born in 78. So by the late 80s, especially the early 90s, everything in in publishing and graphics was Mac stuff. So did they, did, did like your, did the newspaper get a Mac right away? Did that come in later in the 80s? Oh, no, no. no it was okay. my Mac. Right. No, we but using. what I'm I saying, because you're mentioning. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I convinced them. Uh, the reason why I convinced them to invest in Macs we were one of the very first newspapers that had them because I got my Mac 
and brought it in the office and I was trying to show my boss and he said, yeah, but the output's not very good. So I convinced a friend of mine in the hacking community uh, in Orange County, um, the mouse hole. It was uh, called back then, the mouse hole. That was a, uh, a BBS too, right? Or, it was, yeah, it was yeah. a BBS. That's yeah. where we all, uh, back in the days of BBSs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that was back in the day where on your Mac, you, you typed in the source code to MacTep the terminal emulation program by hand from an article uh, in Byte magazine and fixed all the bugs because there were bugs in it. Uh, Anyway, so I convinced him he worked at a local business land and they had just gotten laser writers. This was 1985, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I said, I need you to lend me one. You can lend me one for the weekend. And uh, we basically... It was a combination of lend steel. So uh, <laughs> we basically stole it from the business land and returned it before they figured it out. Uh, and so I convinced them to lend it to me. And then I, I told my boss, I said, I'll do all of my work, everything on the Mac, because I'd been using MacDraw at home. I I pirated a copy of MacDraw. Uh, and you know, Mac draw, you can't really do illustration mm-hmm. in it unless you work really hard. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to work really hard. I could do things in Mac draw that are like, you did that in Mac draw. Don't you need something like illustrator for that? And, um, and it was great for charts and graphs and maps. And I, I had it. So I, I got the laser writer in there and this is the original laser writer it was not a speedy animal either. Uh, and I did all the work that all the graphics in the paper for that weekend were done with my own Mac and that borrowed quote unquote borrowed laser writer. Uh, and my boss was like, okay, you convinced me. And then he allowed me to, uh, well, he had to go to his boss and his boss, you know, that kind of thing to get the budget for it. And within a few months, uh, uh, we had a couple of Macs and our own laser rider, and I was training. Uh, we actually had more artists uh, back then, and I was training staff on how to uh, do that. Okay, that's what I was looking for is some some of that color of, of the Mac getting adopted uh, into publishing and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to yada yada a little bit over uh, some of your career here in the late 80s, but I want to oh, frame two things. Um, first of all, so you never actually – You've never gotten like a, a engineering degree or anything like that. Did you? Did you get the? Uh, you didn't get the uh, the seminary degree either, did you? No, I dropped out of that. Okay, I've got a I've got an associates of arts degree in art though okay. from uh, junior college. So, but but the point is, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any. The programming is self taught. Yeah, um, but you're generally also still fascinated, almost from an artistic angle. Um, like I think you you work at at Macromedia sometime in the in the early nineties. Uh, yeah, uh, Macromedia was my first job, uh, my second programming, paid programming full-time job. The first one was for, um, uh, Tops. It right, was a right. subdivision of, um, uh, Sun Microsystems where we did the network sharing software. But my love at the time was for graphics. And so when, Tops was falling apart and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. I went across uh, the bay to San Francisco and worked for it's like a couple of years at macro uh, at Macromedia on director and 
lots of other things like that. And that was a lot of fun. Well, the reason I wanted to frame that then is because I, I believe before you get hired at Netscape, uh, it, it, you you weren't really working on on web projects, especially given we're gonna, we're going to talk about all the stuff that you do with web browsers. Is that is that right? That before Netscape, oh yeah, there were very few yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and after I left Macromedia, I went to Adobe and worked on Illustrator, which was great because I had pirated it from an Adobe rep who showed me 1.0 when I was working at the Mercury News, uh, mm. the San Jose Mercury mm. News, and their graphics operation years before. Uh, were, you so around, this is my... were you at the Mercury News around the, um, what was it called, the um, Mercury Center project, their first uh, web experiment? Oh, hell no. I was there years and years, years before that. Okay, sorry. I, sorry years to interrupt. Before... Go on, go on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the thing is, before Netscape in the Valley, there was nobody that really worked on web stuff because <laughs> it didn't exist. Uh, so... Um, uh, I, I had a stand at, a, um, I tried to get a job at Netscape, uh, when I got laid off at Adobe and, uh, cause they were having a, um, they were having their usual round of budget cuts back then. And they, they cut a lot of expensive senior people and considering how little they paid me, it was odd that, uh, I, I was considered a senior person, but. Anyway, uh, I tried to get a job at Netscape, and I guess they wanted to hire me uh, then, uh, but there was some screw-up with uh, the recruiter and everything, and he got my name mixed up with someone else. And the recruiter told me, oh, yeah, we're not interested. So I got a, took a job with another company. Mm. And while I was away you know, doing my last celebratory you know, weekend out with my wife and son, uh, I came back and I had like, you know, a dozen messages on my answering machine from the recruiter saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. We made a mistake. Uh, we'd love you to come in and sign on the dotted line. I was like, oh, I, I took this other job. Sorry. And uh, so I showed up at, for work at the other job and uh, it didn't take me long to realize it was terrible. It's a terrible job. And that was one of the very, that was probably the shortest job I ever worked at in my life. Uh, I was there for two months and then I called the Netsuya people back and I said, Hey, would that job still be open? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so that's when I started working in, uh, Netscape was April of 96. So, uh, once again, bad timing. Right. Cause that's after the IPO. Yeah. Yeah, So I, I am not uh, a mozillionaire like, uh, Middlehauser and Montuli who you talk to. Right. Well, actually, uh, so uh, did you work with uh, Alex MacDaddy Tatich? Oh, yeah. yeah. Tatich, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hell yes. He, he's actually, I think he was the very first interview I ever got, and he's still to this day one of my favorites. Uh, he he is a total character and uh, an animal. And we always said uh, uh, the rest of the Mac when he's there, if anybody's still going to have his money left over uh after all the extravagance of uh, netscape and everything else it's alex you know because of of his background coming from uh eastern europe and everything else you know he he knew the value of a (laughs) dollar so uh he wasn't uh, alex was not stupid well let's let's get into let's get into netscape though um because actually so all those netscape guys i talked to 
they were the the early guys. A lot of them came over from um, NCSA, and and then they all basically leave when AOL uh, 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 purchases Netscape. So you get there in '96, and, and I'm assuming you're working on the the Mac Navigator team. Yeah, I'm working on the Mac Navigator uh, t- uh, team, and I got there uh, just after just after Cheddar, which was the code name for Netscape uh, Navigator 2.0. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Netscape had just acquired uh, – I can't think of the name of the company now. I'm old. It's all fading. <laughs> My brain cells are dying. Uh, but they were they were convinced that you know they needed to bu- uh, build a kitchen sink application. So right, Netscape stuff. Navigator. Yeah, yeah Communicator. So uh, that was Akbar on uh, uh, Netscape 3. And so we were all – you know, I was working on the the Mac Navigator component for my first few months there, uh, and this was back when we were. Uh, it wasn't the original location by any means. I mean, mm-hmm. Netscape in its various incarnations had probably been through four, three or four locations by that time. One of which was, you know, starting out in Illinois before I guess right. uh, uh, before they came out here. And so we were over on, um, shit, uh, Ellis, I think it was in Mountain View. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't the original location in Mountain View, but, uh, uh, and so that was interesting, uh, getting in that environment, uh, sort of anything goes, uh, not politically correct by any stretch of the imagination. Well, go go, uh, into, go but, into that more, go into the culture a little bit. Um, the culture, well, it was like a lot of engineering organization um, uh, culture back then. It was uh, uh, it was very very male. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still very uh, white. Um, not only very male, it was very misogynist. Um, uh, very white. Um, uh, for the most part, and it was a, you know, if you, if you weren't a drinker before you worked at Netscape, by God, they'd make you one. Uh, we had some phenomenal parties and I know when we moved into the other location, there were some things going on that would, uh, you know, we had a. Uh, we had this thing on campus for a while where, you know, cause they encouraged you to, uh, you to work yourself to death where, uh, there were rooms where you could actually sleep. You could catch a few Z's in, mm-hmm. uh, but there were a lot of things going on in those rooms <laughs> other than people, you know, sleeping and, uh, a lot of stained sheets as it were, mm-hmm. uh, in those quarters, um, uh, and the city of Mountain View finally uh, sh- uh, shut it down because they were – they uh, told Netscape you're running an unlicensed hotel. So you couldn't do that. So you just had to go back to sleeping under your desk. <laughs> uh, so – and then, you know, there were lots of really squirrely things. Like you'd be at the office one day in your Cubitron 2000 because uh, we were just packed – we were just packed stupid. And those old – I think they were old – National Semiconductor Buildings or something? I, I can't remember what the hell they were. You know, I've, uh, I've, I've 
researched that at some point. It's in one of my episodes, but yeah, I don't remember. I, I can't remember. It's all blurring together. And uh, I remember raising my head, you know, like a prairie dog above the cubicles because I heard some commotion at the distance. And, you know, there were there were dueling camera crews, one from CNN and I think one from ABC coming up different aisles to interview various people. And you just, you know, you rolled your eyes at that and tried to get back to work uh, about that kind of shit. Well, also, what about culturally in the sense, because like, you know, again, when I do research it and and when you read like the, the Harvard business, you know, case studies in the retrospectives and things like that, like you realize that, you know, it was this really compressed period of time, you know, the 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 IPOs 95, late 95. And then what is it? 98 that that AOL purchases. It. So there's three years there and they go through like four or five different major business plan changes like fundamental changes to what they're trying to do oh i i think it was at least four yeah so Um, is that is that part of the chaos too is that you know you'll you'll go in and all of a sudden okay guys forget everything we did for the last three months now we're doing this yeah but in engineering you get you get a little bit more inoculated to that than uh the poor beggars in marketing you have to figure out a way to sell it um because um, it didn't seem quite that bad at the time. Uh, the real, the real, uh, there were two big disruption points as far as I'm concerned. One was the AOL purchase, mm-hmm. uh, and the, which n- none of us liked, uh, we, we hated and it, they tried to impose a lot of stuff that just didn't work. And the second was um, Andreessen's uh, Hail Mary, uh, which was uh, open sourcing right. uh, okay, okay. So which we actually did like. And that's the part of my time at Netscape that I'm actually the most proud. There were three months there that were like being in a startup uh, that I made – you know, I made a lot of friends there. In fact, one of my neighbors in the house I'm uh, here, uh, I knew from the very, uh, that's a neighbor just on the other side of my fence, mm-hmm. uh, is a person who work, uh, worked at Netscape back in the day then. So, I, you know, I, some of these people I've known for a long time, but you made a lot of really tight relationships with those people uh, during that time because open sourcing navigator or open sourcing communicator was just such a crazy damn idea and a lot harder than people think it's not like well you take your source code that you have and you 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 publish it to the internet on github you know or something that one github didn't exist you know you hand out uh cds or dvds (laughs) or whatever like that uh back then this was in um this was 331 day right so it was a that's what we called it, uh, March 31st. And, um, uh, and the code was not clean. You know, we had, we were using all sorts of proprietary code and. Well, I've all, read the, the code, and the code is not clean, but it's also not clean in terms of there's a lot of curse words in there too, right? Oh yeah. And I'm actually in the middle of working on a blog post about this, uh, uh, about this, uh, you know, cause I have the reputation for as I mentioned before the podcast started, colorful metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the night Andreessen uh, did decided, well, we're going to open source it, which was 
uh, All right, hold that thought. Which was hold talked thought. about ahead of time. I was like, going to say, hold that thought, because did, was that something that you guys were talking about internally, like maybe agitating for, or does the open source idea come down strategically from above? As near as we could tell, Andreessen pulled it out of his ass that day. I mean, it was talked about all of like zero seconds. And you call it you call it a hail mary. Yeah, that's a hail mary. And so we were all like, "What the hell?" But you know, uh, several of the people there came from the open source community, and they were ragging on AOL to like lighten up, and so so. A lot of them got behind, you know, like Jamie Zawinski got behind it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember that night, because I was in management by then, uh, I remember that night being on the um, mailing list and we were trying to figure out how the hell we're going to do this. Because not only had Andreessen, I think, announced I think it was like January, first or second week of January announcement, third week of January. And he said, and it'll be open sourced by, you know, the end of March. And we went, Oh shit, how are we going to do that? <laughs> so we're on like a mailing list, um, that night. And, you know, there's lots of notables there. Like, you know, uh, uh, Chris Hoffman who was running engineering at the time and, um, uh, uh, Michael toy and, uh, Andreessen himself and stuff like that. And we're talking about, you know, which code we have to excise and replace and how much work that's going to be. And somebody points out, you know, hey, we need to, you know, there might be some racy language in the code. Uh, We need to scrub it uh, for, you know, George Carlin's seven uh, dirty words, Um, uh, which, you know, you can look that up on Wikipedia if you want. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, and it was getting really late, and so I, I guess I wasn't having enough oxygen, and so I replied to the thread. And this has got like every, you know, just everybody in management uh, in Netscape on it. And I said seven. What are you kidding me? How about? And I rolled off a list of twenty-five or thirty words, uh, and just stupidly hit send. And then I'm sitting there uh, and thinking, I, I just got fired, didn't I? <laughs> And, and it was funny. It was a very short amount of time. Uh, I, and I think it was Chris Hoffman who replied, you know, Gramps is right. Uh, we, you know, I'm sure there's even worse than this in there. And so uh, I, I, I sort of got put in charge of cleaning that part of it up. But we, we divvied up that, that work. But, you know, it wasn't removing the dirty words that was a hard part because you can, like, grep for that. And you can grep to find, you know, the places in the code where we had engineers using the word fuck as, you know, a line separator, you know, <laughs> peated, you know, as a section separator. Um, it was the derogatory things we said about uh, partners and competitors that we buried in the code that, oh, God, you know, you got to get rid of that stuff. Um, but really the hard thing was replacing all those sections of, of, of code, uh, that, um, uh, that we didn't have the license to, Mm -hmm. right. Couldn't open source. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this whole effort is documented in, uh, code rush where you can see this dumpy middle-aged guy sometimes running around. That's me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I've, uh, I've seen 
there's a scene in there with middle uh with uh rather with Andreessen uh calling Steve Jobs at the last minute to try to get permission to use some of Apple's code. And I think that was the first time I ever talked to Steve was that's not the first time I saw him or mm-hmm. saw him speaking, but the first time I ever talked to Steve was in that conference call that we did that at Netscape. Yeah. By the way, I'll, I'll put the link to code rush in the, in the notes, but I, you guys will remember that cause we've, we've talked about it before. Um, okay. So the, so it's it's with Netscape and it's and it's open sourcing this that that you I guess uh, get your chops in terms of 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 coding a web browser. Yeah, well, when I first got there in '96, I mean they mm-hmm. they they put me in. <laughs> they just throw you in the deep end. And it was like, okay, start fixing bugs mm. now. <laughs> Look, so you have to learn the code and um, uh, and. There was part of the code I learned so well that uh, it was part of the layout engine that I I unfortunately became the stooge to fix a whole bunch of the leaks in it because it just leaked like a sieve. Hmm. And Eric Bina, who's also one of the right. uh, the Chicago guys, uh, I became like this combination thorn in his side and stooge. Mm-hmm. Uh, to fix these problems. Um, but that was in the old engine. Uh, the old engine was horrific. Um, this was before Gecko. Uh, used to initiate new um, uh, new employees at Netscape, new engineers, by showing them the source code, uh, particularly to this function. It's famous called NetGetURL mm-hmm. uh, in the old code. And it was like the, you know, it was like the center code that loaded a web page. And I have actually watched people go, ah, oh, my God, when they see the code because it was that squirrely. And the code was so fragile. It was this huge, huge function. It was so fragile that you couldn't even move comments around in it because we were compiling on, like, every platform that was available back then. And you had to be very careful because you would just break navigator on a particular platform if you screwed with that function too much so that was back before the days of gecko and then uh doing gecko i got involved in that because gecko started out they wanted to redo the browser but redo it in java like that makes a hell of sense and so they were buying this technology instead of engineers to do that and they started doing this new engine uh, and it was really slow and terrible, but that engine became the seed rewritten again uh, to become what would later become Gecko, which is getting replaced now. Right? Is is was it um, Navigator four that Gecko launches in? When does Gecko become the main engine? Oh crap! I I don't remember. Okay, what you, you, you don't have to know that. Um, um, yeah, it was it was certainly after three three one day. It was after we open sourced it because the original version of okay, so it would be after uh, four be, then I think yeah okay yeah yeah oh, it was way after four right 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 um okay but and so this is gonna I think be... it was Nets, yeah, I don't even think it was Netscape six because there is no Netscape five that died. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think was, there is no Netscape. Is that, there is a version that we didn't do because the project died. 
Well, what I what I wanted to do is ask you in a, what's probably a really dumb question, but oh sure, just in a general way, a dumb answer is the is the art of making a web browser just this kind of balancing act of keeping things efficient, creating an engine that's speedy, but still you want it to be able to render and do a lot of cool stuff, right? Is it, is it a, is it a big balancing act at, at its core? Well, in a way, almost all software is that's like true. that. See that I told you a uh, dumb question, but, uh, but, um, the, the problem with doing a web browser is, um, uh, it's like, um, I have an old saying that I'm, I'm famous for, uh, at Apple in the early days. Uh, the internet is basically line noise. Mm. Uh, and yet we have to render it. Uh, and that's the problem is you have a, like a lot of standards, you have, um, a lot of protocols, uh, but uh, you have to be able to take all the stuff that's, you know, you have to take garbage in, but not put garbage out. That's the really hard thing about a web browser. And uh, and they're always constantly evolving, new, which is a good thing, uh, new standards, everything else. So compatibility is... Uh, what kills you a lot of times. Uh, that's a really, really hard thing uh, to deal with. And when I went to Apple later on, this, you know, the compatibility thing was uh, what I worried about most initially. You know, then it was, after that, it was like worrying about performance, but it was being able to actually render things in a way that people expected. And by render, I don't mean just draw the right, right. pixels in the screen, but I, I mean, render the behaviors, render the styles, you know, um, do the things people expect of a web browser. That's really hard. And the other thing about a web browser is, um, there's so much inside it. It's, it's basically its entire own operating system. <laughs> it's a very, uh, you know, it has its, it has its own runtime. It has its own language, you, you know, uh, it's very, very complicated. I used to think, um, uh, I used to think Adobe Illustrator was the most complicated program I ever worked on mm -hmm. and it pales in comparison to web browsers. So, um, all right. So I'm going to yada yada again, because I want to continue the, the, the web browser thread, because I know. In between Netscape, you you work at Easel with Andy Hertzfeld yep. and a, a you know a, it was great a whole all star group of people. But you're you're working on uh, uh, Nautilus, which was what a, a file file browser or something for Linux. Yeah, oddly enough, it was also a web browser. Oh, okay. Because it did that too. But we we were like taking a chunk of web. I was trying not to get involved in that part. We were taking because it would render web content too. But we're using the library in uh, uh, a very bad library in GNOME to do that. Um, uh, this was on the Linux platform. Mm -hmm. And I went there because I got so tired of – I went to Easel because I got so tired of Netscape. And who doesn't want a job where they get to work for Bud Tribble, you know, the original mm -hmm. um, uh, Mac software manager, and work, you know, alongside Andy Hertzfeld, 
at his company because he, you know, he co-founded Easel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was completely tilting at uh, windmills, and I totally, you know, I stupidly exercised my 83B uh, there. So I've got like an 83B is a stock option exercise mm-hmm. thing where it, it, everybody in the valley would know what that means. Right. Uh, sorry. Uh, so I, I have what I, I call my $28,000 t-shirt from easel. <laughs> you, you exercise your options ahead of time. You got to pay because, for them. Anyway. Right, right. Because what we're, we're alluding to is that easel, uh, was a startup that didn't make it. Oh, it augured into the desert floor so <laughs> hard, but the great thing about it is I met all these great people and, um, and if not for bud, uh, bud triple, um, I might not be working at Apple because uh, I, uh, as I knew we had, we didn't have any runway. I went to Bud uh, and I said, uh, you know, I probably need somewhere to work here soon. <laughs> so uh, do you still have any connections at Apple? Because, you know, at least they're in business. And and this was also at the time that the dot-com bubble was just bursting. Mm-hmm. This was... Ah, early to very early 2001 when easily exploded. Uh, and, um, we had to lay off, you know, half the company, which me and another guy, uh, the guy, uh, Ken Kishinda, the guy who went with me, um, as my first engineer on, uh, Safari, uh, he, uh, he was the other engineering director at easel and we had to like sit in a room and decided who lived and died. And let me tell you, boys and girls, you don't ever want to do that. Mm. You don't ever want to make those calls. Uh, that was like one of the worst days of my life. Anyway, so uh, I asked Bud, hey, do you, you know, you still have some connections. Oh, he went over and I guess he made some calls and he just assumed I wanted to work, you know, in graphics and stuff like that that mm-hmm. I'd done before. And he talked to some of the folks in the app group. And I went over and talked to them and it was like, yeah, no, I don't want to work there. And, uh, I said, I went back to Bud and I said, you know, anybody in system software? And he said, you know, that's funny. They just called me and they want to talk to you. And I went, Oh, that's great. Uh, so I went in and had a conversation with Scott Forstall. So wait, originally what there, it was, you were interviewing with what that, like the iPhoto team or something like that? Like, yeah, basically. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, one of my old friends uh, from Netscape was uh, was working uh, working uh-huh. there. I think it was on. Uh, it wasn't iPhone. Uh, I think we had iPhone. Thing. I was. I think it was iMovie. I can't remember. Right. The it's first. All... The first one was iMovie. Right. Because actually, uh, Mike Slade just told us that story when Steve had everybody uh, make their own home videos and bring them in and stuff. Um, but okay, all right. So originally, you, you didn't want to work on that. You wanted to work uh, on the core system. And so, tell me about the the interview with Scott. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, I I guess I was just really full of piss and vinegar that day. Uh, I went in and uh, uh, this was you know, Infinite Loop camp, uh, campus. It's not the uh, not the spaceship, you know, that didn't exist. Um, and, uh, it wasn't very crowded because Apple back in those days was actually still pretty small. Uh, and this was in, let's say early May, 2001, 
maybe late April 2001 when I went in and talked to Scott. Uh, and I went in and I had to sign an NDA to have the interview with him. And we went in and sat down in his office and we're talking about various things. He's sort of like feeling me out on stuff and asked me some of the strangest damn questions about sort of like, you know, asking around the corner about this, if I could do a project like this and this. And I just said, are you asking me uh, whether I could do a web browser? And he was like, hold that thought. And so he buzzes in his administrative assistant and she brings in another NDA even longer and says, I I need you to sign this before we can talk. And so I go through and, you know, he witnesses it and everything does the thing in triplicate. She walks out the door. We both watch her walk out the door, the door shuts. And then he turns to me and says, yes. (laughs) So, and, uh, so I, he said, well, how would you do that? And, um, like I said, I was full of piss and vinegar that day. And I said, well, you know, uh, the easy thing would be is to use the technology that I used at Netscape. But I know from when I left there, it's fat bloated and slow. And it sounds to me like something, you know, you want something lean and fast. So I would use, uh, I would consider using, um, KHTML and KJS from the Conqueror web browser on, uh, on Linux. You know, it's, it's compatible with stuff out there, uh, mostly compatible stuff out there now. And I'm sure it's much smaller in size and simpler and use that as a basis. Uh, and he was like, he was really impressed with the answer. And then I, you know, sort of immediately forgot that, Mm. but it got me the job (laughs) and fast forward, uh, a month, uh, and like, you know, he's a little, uh, I guess, I guess that would have been April when I talked to him because it was, we were shortly out of business, uh, after that fast forward a month. And I'd convinced Scott that one of the other guys coming over that was in inter- excuse me, interviewing at easel from easel at the same time I was that if Scott's going to offer me the job, this had to be my first hire on the new team to do the browser. And that was Ken Kishenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because Ken was interviewing to go off on another team, the toolkit team. And I said, I told Scott, I said, Ken is the brilliant engineer, very creative and also an incredibly fast typist, (laughs) (laughs) but I think he'll do an even better job if you want this web browser to be successful. So I convinced him to uh, assign Ken to my project, which was great because that saved our lives. And later on, after you know we wound up doing Safari and WebKit and stuff, Ken would do you know very minor things later on, like the entire keyboard to the iPhone, you know, little things like that. Well, He's the guy who did that. Let me. Um... I, I'm obviously being facetious, right? That's a huge. <laughs> It's the yeah. guy who invented that. So, uh, so we, uh, so we arrived on June twenty fifth, two thousand and one, and started Safari and WebKit. Oh, right, because your blog you just uh, had had the anniversary of that. Uh, you were yeah, which yeah. people get wrong, and Ken and I have to smack people 
every few years and say, no, no, it started on this date. And it started on that date because that was the date we started at Apple. So. Well, okay, uh, again, a potentially stupid question, but why does Apple want to do a browser? Is it just to, because that stupid Internet Explorer deal from 97 or whatever was, was chafing at them? Yeah, but it was chafing at them for uh, reasons that people didn't necessarily realize. Uh, part of the thing was, I mean, if you work at Apple long enough or if you even observe Apple long enough, Apple does not like to be beholden to somebody else for technology, right? They want to own the technology. Mm -hmm. They did not own um, key technology and an application that was becoming more and more and more important on their system. They got it. The internet, even though the dot-com bubble had just burst, was a huge thing, right? They also knew that they wanted to use web technology in other places in the system. And they couldn't do that with Microsoft's web browser, right? You know, you can't take the engine out of it and embed it somewhere else, right? right. right? So they not only wanted a web browser, they wanted an engine that they could redeploy. Um, and they didn't want to have to pay Microsoft, um, for that because for boy, that, yeah, for the privilege. And they weren't sure uh, about the technology because there was, there were a lot of complaints about it, Brian. I mean, uh, you know, it was not, uh, it was not the best of web browser. It w certainly wasn't the worst. It was better than, uh, certainly in terms of, uh, it's CSS capabilities. It was much better than its equivalent on Windows because it was a different code base. Uh, but its DOM capabilities were pretty, pretty bad back then. So uh, they wanted it for that reason. The other reason is the biggest complaint they got from Mac users was speed. And this was a huge thing that Apple was always, you know, very sensitive about performance because we were the power PC company and, you know, PCs were the, the, uh, Intel, uh, 86 company. Uh, so, you know, we had to be as good and we had this really slow web browser on the Mac. And the whole idea is we need a much faster, lighter weight solution. So it was all about, um, it was all about speed, but they also wanted it to be, you know, completely compatible with, Internet Explorer for Windows, for example, which I knew was impossible. I knew some of the things that they wanted were completely impossible, but I nodded because, you know, what's the worst thing? They fire me and I'm out of a job again, right? So uh, the hard thing, um, once we settled on a technology, which that was the big thing that I picked. Um, right, not going with Mozilla, not going with Gecko. Well, and not going with uh, lots of other things. Uh, Apple had written two of their own, uh, actually three of their own uh, web browser engines, uh, one of those being CyberDog, but CyberDog was a dead end. And people ask me, is there any CyberDog code in Safari? And the answer is always, no, <laughs> not, not a damn thing. But uh, there were two other engines, uh, you might say layout or renderers that um uh, were one of them was from the next days and one was sort of like a hybrid next and Apple kind of thing. But they, uh, th they were really, um, uh, 
they would not have rendered the modern web. Uh, you know, they had no, they had no interactive uh, solution. There was no JavaScript there. There was no, there was no CSS there. Uh, you know, one of them was basically using hijinks uh, on top of the RTF type rendering, the rich text rendering en engine built into Coco um, uh, to do uh, HTML. So it was like a, it was a, it was a ginormous hack. It was a, quite a clever hack, actually, but it, it never would have worked for a real web browser. Uh, so the other thing, I looked at uh, everything. I mean, I, I was seriously considering Opera for a few days there. Hmm. Uh, and uh, because it was very fast and they would have sold us the source code cheap, we could have licensed that. But There's an alternative history there. Yeah, there's an alternative history there. But as I started looking into it deeper, you know, the code just seemed to be from talking to some people out of band who'd seen the code that it was uh, the the original Opera Engine was kind of like, uh, well, it wasn't exceptionally clean. And the other thing, which is amazing, considering, you know, Opera originated in Europe, uh, they, they couldn't handle Unicode to save their lives. Hmm. I mean, it was just like an 8-bit engine. Uh, and I knew this was also going to be problematic, not only for rendering content, but also for, our, uh, for JavaScript. So I, I like passed on that. And, um, we went back to considering briefly Internet Explorer again and thought, well, maybe we paid Microsoft the money and then just, uh, take it apart. Um, Ken believed that we could do, um, uh, before there was ever the um, uh, Firefox, he believed that you could take the Mozilla code base and make it work. He could make it work. And then he uh, he tried to build it, and he was like, don't ever let me do that again. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and uh, then Richard Williamson uh, joined us about a month into the project, and he thought, well, we can write it on our own. I'll, I'll take this XML parser, and we'll use that as the basis and do an experiment. Let me do an experiment, Don. And uh, I said, okay, humoring him, knowing that an XML parser is not going to be able to parse HTML. But I wanted him to learn it the hard way, and I figured it was worth two days of his time while we were still trying to decide how we were going to do this. And um, he came to, back to me after two days, and he's like, yeah, that's never going to work. <laughs> so it's like, thanks. Now I don't have to argue with you later on about the decision. <laughs> So uh, we we had to fish and cut bait there about you know uh, five weeks in. So um, I said I gathered the team in my office, which was Ken and Richard. I said, here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to use KHTML and KJS as the foundation. I went back to the essentially almost a joke or a bluff I told Scott in the original interview. And I had him go look at it and they went, wow, this code is, it's pretty clean. It's exceptionally small. And we got a Linux box to, to play with a little bit on. And uh, uh, they were like, we can do this. So now I had to convince Scott and then I had to convince Bertrand. And then I had to convince Avi um uh, because Steve wouldn't have made a call on an engine like this. So that, that was my management chain at the time. Mm. Scott Forstall reported uh, uh, Bertrand Serlet reported to Avi Tefani and reported to Steve. Mm -hmm. So by the time I left, it was 
I was reporting to Scott still, same guy, but he reported to Steve directly. Right. So, but anyway, so uh, we just started typing, and I decided, well, we're going to have to convince them that this will work. How do we do that? But we also have to start the porting because they'd given me a deadline of a year to get this thing done. So, um, both Ken and Richard are two of the best rapid prototypers I've ever met. But uh, Richard just had a wild hair that he could pull this off because he had more experience with X than Ken did. And so um, Richard came up with the idea of what he called the Spooge Project. And uh, Richard was born in the UK and England and I did not know what the word spooge meant. Mm -hmm. I found out later and it was entirely appropriate to call it that. <laughs> uh, and so what he did was he got uh, a Mac running um, X windows. Uh, and under X windows, he took the core of the conqueror browser in this ginormous hack and cut it out and made it look like a Mac application and made it run on a Mac and made X windows look like a Mac. Uh, and so you basically had KHTML and KJS in a conqueror like browser running in that environment using the X calls and uh, the other Unix libraries, Qt and everything else directory, uh, directly as a prototype just to show Avi what it would look like. In the meantime, Ken and I are typing away like madmen, um, uh, starting on the real code where we basically just take the core LGPL engines, KHML and KJS, and we try to compile them standalone on a Mac with the tools of the time. And, you know, you just, you hit a compile error. Oh, you don't have this function. Create a stub for that function, right? Mm -hmm. uh, lather, rinse, and repeat for like, it was like, two and a half weeks um, just to get things stubbed out and uh, finding all the stuff because we, we couldn't look at the other code. We couldn't look at the code for QT, you know, because we, uh, we couldn't license that code, right? So we had to just look at the, the other open source components. Uh, QT was this uh, framework. Um, so, uh, that's what we did at the same time. Then Richard, I had Richard demo the Spooge project to Avi. He totally bought it. Then we promptly deleted that project because we didn't need it anymore. You know, it's uh, maybe Richard has a, a copy around on some Apple server to this day, but I don't think so. And then we, we started trying to finish that. In the meantime, I'm convincing Scott to give me more recs because doing a web browser in a year's time with three people, is like impossible. That's a fool's errand. But I'd convinced Ken and Richard that it was possible, you know, as long as that was fine. But I knew it wasn't going to be possible. In fact, I knew that we couldn't do it in a year's time. I knew it would take 18 months to two years. But I figured they wouldn't give me two years. They'd hang me by then. Mm -hmm. But I could probably get away with 18 months. And it was almost 18 months of the day that uh, by the time we came out. So I started trying to hire and, and hire people. And the pool of people that I first tried to go for were people at Netscape, hmm. you know, that worked on a web browser before. Hmm. 
but I had one problem in the interviewing process, Brian. I couldn't tell them what right. they were working on because, you know, this was a, a double secret, if not triple secret project. So right. I had to interview them and they're like, and a lot of them are not stupid, right? You know, they, I remember Romero Estrugo, uh, who was the guy who convinced me to come to easel from Netscape. Mm -hmm. I interviewed him and, uh, and he's like, Gramps, you're making a web browser. <laughs> it's like, a, he figured it out uh, right away. And I, I can't confirm or, you know, uh, confirm that. And I won't say how many facial expressions I made at the time when he <laughs> asked me that, but, uh, I just it couldn't get, uh, I couldn't convince him because they were like, this is a fool's errand because these are people who got ground under the heel of Microsoft, right? Doing a web browser that they thought was like, that they loved and they, why did they want to go on that kind of jihad? Ground, so, ground me under your heel once, shame on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, twice, yeah. And so, like, turn me down. So I thought, how the hell am I going to do this? And then it hit me. Like, all these smart people I work with at Easel. Because um, I, I needed really smart people. I needed smart, hardworking people. And there were a lot of those. Uh, and so I started recruiting from those folks. Uh, John Sullivan to do... Uh, UI, uh, Maciej Stachowiak, uh, to work on, uh, the engine, uh, Darren Adler to also work on the engine, uh, who would eventually take a, uh, a report to me running the project several, uh, years later. And so I started accumulating those people and they were really smart and I'm very persuasive and I made them believe they could do it. Now I knew we couldn't do it. But you never tell your team that, right? Because I knew we still had something missing. We needed somebody better than myself, because I'm an idiot. We needed somebody who really knew web technology. I needed one expert, even though, you know, people like uh, Ken and Richard and Mache and Darren and John and, uh, and the other team are some of the smartest people I, I've ever met in my life. You know, Mache is a, you know, he's a gill man from the planet Xenon smart. Um, and, but I knew I needed somebody who'd been, you know, uh, around the track a few times. And that's when I started working on David Hyatt, who was still, uh, in the velvet coffin at Netscape. Mm -hmm. And I had to convince him to come over here and join the job. Now he's the guy who also started Firefox. Mm -hmm. So why the hell would that guy want to come there? But I'd known David for a long time, and I'm really good at wheedling people, I guess. And I convinced him to, to start up, take a pay cut and everything else, and, and go over to Apple. He, he hated Macs. He was a Windows guy. This was really... You talking about the one of the hardest hires I ever did in my life was getting Hyatt on there, but he was key because I remember after he went through ori orientation, I brought him into one of the staff meetings, and I said, and I had a rule to everybody in the staff at that point so far. It's all about getting the engine working up on the platform. You know, get KHTML and KJS working on the Mac. 
get all the infrastructure to glue them in to the Mac way of doing things. But you don't fuck with the engine itself. But I remember the the first or second meeting I had Hyatt in there, and I said, okay, Dave, your job is to get on that pony and cowboy it now. <laughs> it's like, you know, just, <laughs> just, just start the rodeo. We, uh, because I knew it was not compatible enough. You know, it, um, it was good. It was a good basis for a web browser, mm-hmm. but it sure as hell wasn't going to render things like even IE for the Mac. It wasn't even going to render a lot of things even like, uh, Mozilla did at that time. And so we needed some, uh, some love and care and, you know, uh, someone banging on it with a mallet really. Uh, and so that's what Hyatt's job was. And his next job was to, to sucker other people into that to help them learn the engine and which they did in very rapid fashion. I think I I read on your blog that, cause I love this phrase that the the team had this phrase, uh, or somebody did, if it doesn't fit, you're not shoving hard enough. Oh yeah. That was a famous one from Ken Kashinda. That was, uh, in our early days of doing the, um, the adapter, but we use that as a mantra later on. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were all pragmatists. Um, I was, you know, don't give me excuses, right? I don't care if it doesn't fit. <laughs> Figure out a way. <laughs> you know, write some code to adapt. And they were all really smart. They were much better engineers than I was, and they were much clever. Uh, sometimes they would throw up their hands and give up and. You know, like, I, I can't do it. And I get in there and we're going to, you know, you have to shame them sometimes or you have to wheedle or whatever. But they they always came through. They were just, we couldn't have done it without all those all those folks. And I'm not even mentioning all the names. Not that there were a lot. There were only nine of us in the beginning. But the big challenge was not even that. The big challenge was performance. Uh, because about nine months into it, I got called into the carpet because we had started letting uh, uh, Bertrand and Avi use some early versions, and it was just slower than shit. And so um, they were like, you know, Don, you said this thing was going to be faster than Mac IE. It's it's a dog. And they were right. They were totally right. I had taken my eye off the ball. I was I was so worried about, you know, getting the bear to dance. I didn't realize that, you know, it was slow dancing. So um, we had to make it fast. And once again, the team came through. They just brilliant. Uh, the things that we did, we, we had to become experts in performance. Uh, and some of the stunts they, they pulled, and they got very competitive about it. Who could be, get the big you know, the biggest performance gains. First thing we had to do was I got everybody into a room and I said, okay, the jig is up. You know, they're going to fire us all unless we, you know, get the performance up. And, um, and you know, what's, uh, well, I said, okay, Gramps, what's the goal? You know? And I said, the goal, the goal is to be the fastest web browser ever. That's the goal. That's what you you go for. 
and how are we going to do that first? First thing we got to do is we got to learn how to measure how much we suck right now. So we started building uh, some of our own tools. Uh, some of the instrumentation that we did helped influence um, things that went into the Xcode Instruments app uh, years later. Um, uh, but we started measuring and uh, they came through. Some of the stuff was just boneheaded things, right? Uh, those were easy to get through. And uh, within, I would say, a month, we got like some of the more grotesque things out of the way. And then we started, you know, uh, Ken came up with a great way with the networking code to get a huge performance gain. It was like a 30% gain. And then uh, Richard figured out with uh, text rendering after I convinced him, I know you can do it. Just bypass all these APIs, go real low level. And, you know, he got us another 30% gain. And then, and Darren and Mache, who were starting to learn the engine as well, um, uh, they figured out a way to get us uh, together uh, another 30% gain. So I was playing them against each other. It was, it was great. And they were just totally coming through. And Dave, he was, uh, he was uh, focused on compatibility, uh, and that's what I want. And correctness, um, I said, you know, don't make it slower, but you know, make it so we can actually render stuff. And uh, uh, I remember he, him coming to me one time with this patch, and uh, saying, "I got, you know, I've figured out a way to solve this huge pro correctness problem, but it's gonna." slow us down. And by that time, my famous zero regressions policy had kicked in. And I was use this as a management lesson for people, you know, people want to be a leader. Sometimes, you know, you want to be an engineering leader. It's not about it's not a popularity contest. You do a lot of things and people are not happy with you. And as soon as we learned to measure and as soon as we had regular tests, the first time ever that we had something going on and we were suddenly slower, I put my foot down and I called everybody in and I said, you know, this is the new policy. We don't ever regress in performance. If we regress, the change that regressed gets backed out and you do it again. Zero regressions. Um, and they were like, oh, but we've got to do it. And it's like, nope. Either then we won't have that feature or we'll be late. Well, we can't ever give away performance. Not ever. And I was just a total, absolute dictator, Martinet asshole about it. And that's what I had to do. And the funny thing is, is now even to this day, you know, 15 years after the project started, five years since I've been gone, this is like in the team's DNA. You don't ever regress in performance. Well, you it's know, like, how could you possibly do think, even think about doing that? What you're describing is just caring, is just giving a shit. And if I, you know, I, I, I'm wearing my historian in quotes hat on this on this podcast, but from a historian's perspective, what you guys do on Safari and what... 
uh, you know, Firefox is doing at the same time. I don't remember who was on the show. It was one of the Microsoft guys, maybe Hadi Partovi or, or Chris Wilson or somebody. But they, they oh yeah, did, Chris Wilson. They yeah. de- they described the the sort of <laughs> the neglect that Microsoft and Internet Explorer went into uh, about browser technology in general. So, like from a historian's perspective, the the thing that you guys achieve. S- is caring about this technology again and, and, and wanting to make it better and thinking of the user and thinking of performance gains and things like that. So it's like, it's this thing that had sort of degenerated that, that, that you guys and Firefox at the same time by just giving a shit again, (laughs) sort of resurrect this technology. Oh yeah. Uh, And what we did at Apple with Safari and WebKit is we, we started a, a new browser war. Right. And it was a performance war. And we were, when we came out and we continued to do this, we were just totally shaming uh, the Firefox team because uh, we were just kicking their asses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they got around, it, to, to their credit, they were like, well, those those upstarts, that traitor, Grimps, uh, you know, we can't <laughs> let them do that. Uh, actually, you know, the funny thing is nobody ever called me that or gave me shit about that. In fact, I still talk to him or knew him or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, years later when, uh, Richard invented, um, uh, the, um, uh, why can't I think of the word, uh, canvas, uh, mechanism, canvas API mm-hmm. ever to use for drawing and stuff. He came up with that so we could do the clock widget on the dashboard that nobody uses anymore. But anyway, he's the one who came up with that. I called Brendan Ike, my, my old buddy Brendan Ike at Netscape, and said, you know, and Brendan was cool. It's like, hey, we came up with this new idea. We'd like to, you know, we want to, we're going to put it out there, but we want to standardize it. We think it'd be useful to other people. And so, you know, we all knew each other. Uh, I mean, hell, uh, after Chris Wilson, uh, Wilson had left uh, IE, and I'd hired away his best Mac, uh, the Mac, the best Mac IE people from. Uh, 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 from Microsoft, uh, and Dean Hachimovich took over IE. Uh, Dean and I are, you know, we're good friends. I mean, we've talked on the phone many, many times. So, uh, and some of the people I hired at Netscape wound up working on Chrome, you know, so if if you're in the web browser business, Brian, you you all know each other. Mm -hmm. This is just damn few people who actually do it. And so, the competitive atmosphere is actually very, very good. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, I follow several of the people online, uh, who work on the edge browser for Microsoft. Now they're acquaintances, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I talk to them about various bugs from time to time. Now, uh, real nice people. They want to do a good job on my PC. You know, I, I run, you know, Edge along with Firefox and Chrome and things like that because I have a couple of PCs in the house and it works and I give them feedback on that. No, nobody wants to be bad. Nobody is sitting on their hands in this space. Uh, well, that's my point, though, is not anymore because what you guys actually achieved was oh, yeah, yeah. kicking the ass of this technology and making it good again. Yeah, is it? well, we were, we were crazy. Uh, look, you have to think back then, like, got totally nothing to lose. Like, um, approaching the summer of 2001, I was like out of a job, right? 
and I just wanted to go work somewhere fun. Uh, and there were a couple of jobs pro- prospects. Thank God my wife told me, go work at Apple, you idiot. You'll, you'll enjoy that more. And so I wanted to do something really fun. And, you know, the same way I conned my team, Scott Forstall conned me, you know, come and change the world. And I like totally bought, uh, bought into it. I totally bought Scott's bullshit. And so I was like, let's go change the world. Let's go make a difference. I mean, if we're going to be stuck at this little, like when Brian, when I started at Apple, the, uh, the nice thing is I told Scott, like, you just give me the job, give me a bunch of stock options, you know, and then I'm yours. And the second week I'm there, my stock options are underwater. <laughs> right. <laughs> Later on, they would be worth quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you're not doing it for the money and you're not, uh, uh, we were just doing it because we just wanted to do the best thing when you're in that environment. And Apple was like that. I mean, they were real persnickety mofos. Uh, and, um, yeah, they wanted to do really, really good work. And there was a ton of smart people there. Just, just the, just the stuff you could learn wandering around in and out of offices, talking to people there. It was marvelous. How, how could you not get excited about it? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I, I want to end with that with with working at Apple and and um, retiring from Apple and all that stuff. But I I have a hard out in a half an hour, so there's there's two or three things that I want to hit or make sure that we get in before before we have to end. Um, okay, so wrapping up the Safari project, it launches in in January of 2003 at at MacWorld. Uh, because I haven't been able to ask anybody this, what was it like being in the audience? when Steve Jobs is demoing a product that, that you've worked on? Uh, you're wearing two pairs of briefs. Um, <laughs> no, I actually didn't, but you really want to because uh, it is the most nerve-wracking. I wrote about this on my blog. It is the most nerve-wracking thing you'll ever do. Um, for that keynote that he did where he demoed Safari live. It, you know, it was not a director demo. He doesn't do those things. It's, it's live software. Mm-hmm. Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, Ken, I, I chose Ken to take with me to the rehearsals cause Scott said, somebody has got to be there in case something fucks up. Right. Which part of that is somebody has to be there. So Steve can yell at them, but somebody has to be there. So shit can get fixed. Um, and by this time I'd been through like nine months of UI meetings with Steve and I'd, I'd learned how to behave around Steve and he knew who I was and everything else like that. And I had proved to Steve that I wouldn't like either swoon or collapse into a puddle of piss around him, you know? Uh, so I was allowed in and I brought Ken in cause Ken actually knows what he's doing. Unlike me, uh, as a technical backup. And we were there and with the exception of one thing in rehearsals, um, Safari always performed correctly, but you never know what's going to happen live, right? Because it, it's the internet. Uh, and so that was excruciating. I'm not sure if I held my breath the entire 15 or 20 minutes he was doing that, but it sure felt like that afterwards. And right. Uh, and I remember, 
I wrote about this in the blog. It's so funny. Uh, Steve gets up and people are just wowed by Safari. They had just no idea. Most people had no idea this was coming. And this was technology that, you know, we had done. And Steve said, and we based it on an open source engine, right? And you can just tell the fanboys in the audience are going, oh, it's going to be Mozilla, right? Because that was the only one most people knew about. And Steve flashes in 20-foot high letters up on the screen, KHTML. And I remember sitting there in the audience, and there's some guy like seven rows back or, or so. I can just hear him scream, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, we totally caught everybody so, by surprise on that one. That was, that was the funniest thing that happened in the show. And a lot of people don't realize this is that as soon as the show's over and they turn Wi-Fi back on, uh, the early days of Wi-Fi, I had my little iBook, my white um, MacBook. I think we called them MacBooks by then, or maybe they were still iBooks. I whipped it open and I sent the email that I had composed already to the KHTML and KJS team because it was an open source project mm-hmm. uh, announcing what we had done because we developed the entire thing in secret. And I knew I was going to get castigated for, uh, for that, but I knew I could win them over. And worst case scenario, I could strong arm them and take over the code. You know, I hate to say that, but that was part of my calculations and using it because mm-hmm. that's what I was afraid of using Mozilla too. I didn't mention that earlier. Uh, was not only was it a dog at the time, it improved quite a bit uh, by the time we shipped. But I knew that if we developed in secret, didn't tell anybody, and then we pulled that stunt with Mozilla, you know, there there were going to be people coming with torches and, you know, railroad ties to strap me down on for that. But KHML and KJS, which was, you know, like six or seven people, uh, at the time I knew we could get away with it. So, but that was a lot of fun. You, you know, you, you never forget days like that. Uh, I remember being in the audience next to Richard Williamson years later, uh, because he was a person who, uh, who basically did mobile safari, uh, on the iPhone and sitting next to him and watching him go through the same damn thing. Uh, uh, Ken and I were on either side of him. Um, <laughs> and Richard almost losing it uh, when Steve went slightly off script with uh, Mobile Safari the mm-hmm. first time. So, Well, you know, actually, because we, we, we'd be completely remiss if we if we don't <laughs> at least talk about WebKit a little bit. But, I mean, so, first of all, because Mobile Safari... Now we live in the mobile world, so what you created with Safari and then goes into mobile Safari becomes one of the most popular browsers ever. And then yeah. I know that, you know... And it becomes the basis of Chrome. This is right? what I'm going to say. Even though it's forked, that's the basis of Chrome. And so what you created with the Safari project is the ubiquitous browser platform of today. Um. Yeah, there is no getting away from the monster uh, I started. I, and I, by the way, I never think of myself as the creator. Uh, 
I I always think of myself as the person who started, right? Mm -hmm. Who started it, who didn't, you know, no one person created, uh, rather, no one person created Safari or wrote, wrote it. It was a team of very, very talented people. I'm the person that Scott Forstall selected. In a way, he's the guy who started um, Selected to start the project, lead it, build it, and make sure it happened. That is my, you know, that's the niche I'll crawl into if there's a pantheon of web geeks, right? But creating it, people, you know, sometimes credit me with that. And it's like, no, I, I never thought of myself as the creator of that. I... Uh, you know, um, in some ways for WebKit, you can think of Lars Knoll and Hari Porton as the creators because, you know, Lars Knoll was the principal guy behind KHTML and Hari Porton was the principal guy behind uh, KHJS. And so, you know, a lot of this technology is built on their little tiny code projects. So it's a lot of shared, um, shared stuff out there. And frankly, I would hope to God everything I wrote in the original version of Safari and WebKit has been replaced now, <laughs> has been rewritten. If if they're, uh, and I'm pretty sure my team did that because it was you know some of the early stuff that we wrote, the adapter code and some of the other things were truly awful. The one legacy that I have that users will never see, but that occurs streaming across the uh, the internet all the time is the user agent string. You know what a user agent string right, is, right? Right, right, Yeah, I'm the guy who designed the user agent string for Safari and WebKit. I was the guy who figured out how to, to you know, con websites into thinking we were compatible right i read about that because you had you had to keep it a secret of course so you can't have it showing up on on people's server logs yeah at the time we couldn't do that and there was a day where we turned it whenever we were outside uh 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 17 every apple address starts with 17 they own the whole range of uh ip4 addresses every time we were out of there we would turn off the fake uh, user agent string, the Mac IE user agent string, and we would become the user agent string that I designed. And we would test that out to see, you know, if we were getting sent compatible content. And so, you know, if there's any part of the code that's still left, it's, it's that. Well, uh, uh, but, sorry, but, but creating it, I, I never felt like I was the uh, the creator, because and there's so many complicated things to that. I mean, Safari is, uh, you know, Safari is not just about WebKit inside it. It's about the way we tried to design the app. I, I'm very proud of the work um, that we all did, the HI designers that Steve, that Scott did, that my engineers, especially John Sullivan, did in the beginning in designing a very, very simple, easy to use browser you know, that was not geeky, right? And so I think not only the path that we went down about performance and compatibility and pushing the envelope and technologies with WebKit, we also sent the browser world down the path of 
you know, let's make something that doesn't suck in terms of a user experience too. Uh, because both Firefox and IE were just too damn complicated. So uh, I'm very proud of that work too. Real, real quickly, uh, because, you know, WebKit has BGAT, Chrome, and things like that, uh, was it controversial to to open source WebKit? Do you think, you know, maybe <laughs> Apple regrets it at this point? Or... Okay, so third dumb oh, question. There times... the... <laughs> oh, there were times. Oh, there were times. I got second-guessed so many times, and I, I Steve was so pissed off about Chrome um, and wanted to, you know, wanted to change that. But I explained to him, we can't, you know, we can't do that. That was the, <laughs> that was the Faustian bargain we made to get the thing done so fast was use that code that's open source code. And so my whole point and how I help, because um, Maciej Stolhoviak and David Hyatt, uh, along with a, uh, I would say help from Darren Adler. They're they're the ones who said, you know, we have to open source WebKit the right way, not just the toss a tarball over the wall, but invite people in, because if not, we're going to lose control uh, of it. And so I had them help me convince uh, Bertrand Serlet, uh to allow us to really open source it to start WebKit.org. And invite the community in. But I got second guessed so many times. I was so tired of being thought that I was a genius or a complete fuck up, you know, not by my own team or not by my management team. But there were other people at Apple who thought, well, that's a terrible. How can you do a web browser that's not one for one perfectly compatible with Internet Explorer, right? Well, you can't do that because you don't want to have those same stupid bugs mm -hmm. that IE has in it. Th this is why Microsoft finally had to do Edge and toss off the old engine, right? I knew that was a bad idea. You know, do we want the IE5 CSS box model in our new browser? Hell no. So we're going to be in So, But people thought I was an idiot because of not wanting to do that. And then people thought I was a genius for selecting the engine because it was so lightweight uh, and we could use it in the iPhone, right? That Richard's team uh, could leverage it. It's like, great work, Don. And then, you know, when Google went out and fucked us all forking it, uh, create Chrome, they were like, that asshole, Don, uh, you know, making that open source. So, you know, you have to have a thick skin about that. But And like I said, none of my own team or my whole management chain, they never did that to me. But there was... There were a handful of people who gave me shit about it, so you know I don't I don't regret any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so All right, that's what happens. You, the thing is, you have to have the strength of your con, uh, convictions and your decisions. If you don't, then you know what are you what are you playing that game for? Right? Why why are you in the arena? Well, actually, you know, okay that 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 reminds me of something that's a good way to end. Um, because on your blog, uh, donmelton.com, which uh, please... Yeah, I cleverly hid. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you, you, you do talk a lot about um, retiring from Apple, your days at Apple, but also retiring from Apple, why you wanted to do it. I've, I've heard you say that you know people assume you burn out at Apple, but, but in your case, you, you were just done. 
Um, there's yeah. a great the debug podcast. You, I think you're on like four episodes with. Um, in Sinatra, yeah. Right, oh, right, right, right. It's uh, a gem, by the way, too. Talking, talking, uh, talking about various aspects of, of working at Apple. Um, but so let, let's end with this. Um, I think the best analogy on your blog about working with Apple that you that you wrote about was that you said it was like working in a nuclear reactor, and you have to get used to if you can't adapt to the radiation, you'll die. You'll just die. And when I say working in a nuclear reactor, people often misunderstand me. And I was I was talking to the uh, I had lunch with a buddy of mine at Apple. I won't say who he is, but he's <coughs> head of marketing <laughs> uh, uh, last week, and um, he I. People often misunderstand me when I say it's like working in a nuclear reactor. They think I mean working at a nuclear reactor, you know, in the control room, manning the dials and stuff. No, no, no. I mean in the nuclear reactor <laughs> with the, you know, the rods plutonium, and you know, yeah. the plutonium and stuff. And if you don't, if you're not <laughs> made of the right stuff, you're, you're just going to, you're, just going to burst into flame and die. It is, these are very, um, these are very intense people. Right. That's the other thing. Uh, I th think they have changed the world by, you know, by, by that analogy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that as you mean working with the people is the radiation. If you can't hang with them and their intensity level, you can't make it. Yeah. But there's also the particular job, the, the pressures mm -hmm. that you're under. Uh, almost nothing is worse than having success after success after success, right? Which Apple has had years of that. That That is a pressure like you wouldn't believe. But it was not that pressure that got to me or working with the intensity, right? I, I got used to that. In fact, after I retired, people, you know, that worked for me, you know, I'd met in a social occasion or whatever, uh, they were in you know, my department told me, you know, they were scared to death of me. And I was like, really? <laughs> Not all of them, obviously, but a few of them they were, they were like, you know, it was like this, this person who, you know, uh, who, you know, made decisions like this and, you know, led people and, you know, very clear cut vision. It was like, well, that's, you know, I, I was taught by one of the best, Scott Forstall. I mean, like, you know, you don't dick around when that's your boss, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, a uh, you know, some of that rubbed on, off on me. I, I, you know, I hope I didn't traumatize people over the the long term for that. But it was not that aspect that made me want to retire. It was that when I was looking back on it, and then looking forward to what I wanted to do next, you know, what I want to want to accomplish. I realized I didn't, you know, I didn't quite have the passion to keep going. And you never want to do that kind of job if you're not as passionate about it. And I also felt, you know, I, I just didn't care about, you know, becoming vice president of the universe or something like that. Uh, and I knew there were people who worked for me that were a lot smarter than me. And I never wanted to be that person that was standing in their way. Right. So I was just like, you know what? I'm eh, good. <laughs> I'm good. I'll, I'll just step aside. You know what? Like I'm, I'm on top. I'll just step aside, let the wheel keep spinning. And 
I don't do not miss the work there at all. Uh, there is not a day goes by that I <laughs> I cannot you know say uh, I cannot say that I don't miss the work. But every day I miss all those wonderful people, mm-hmm. and there was not you know, there was not any bad people I worked with at that place. They were all they were all really good people. I I, I am just privileged to have have known them and, and worked with them. And I'm so glad so many of uh, those smart ones are, are still there and they still have the passion, which I didn't do. I, I, I could not find it in myself. And right. they've been very, very sweet to me saying, you know, I guess it's okay. Gramps, you know, you, you, you can get off the spinning wheel now. Uh, well, I, I, I read you say also that you miss having minions. No, no. Uh, well, on occasion, I, <laughs> Uh, it was nice being able to think I have people for that. Uh, and you know, like, uh, right now it's my, you know, like I'm going to tell my wife to do things like that. That's (laughs) that, that ain't going to fly or my dog, you know, that's, uh, I, I'm a minion now. So, (laughs) but it's not, um, it's, it's not, I don't miss the responsibility. Now, the funny thing is, Brian, uh, sleeping at night when I dream, I still sometimes dream about work or dream about the pressures or I'll wake up in, uh, you know, a sweat for a real intense, you know, we're on deadline, big pressures. And it's like, why am I doing that still even five years, more than five years after retiring? So you get that in your system it gets in your dna for a while it is really really hard to shake which is again why i tell people you want to be in the arena you want to have those pressures on you please realize what that's going to cost you and ask yourself is it worth it know what you're signing up for yeah know what you're signing up for because I'd love to say that everybody is fully actualized. You can work an eight-hour day. Everybody understands work-life mixture. Uh, it's all about the balance. But in reality, that's all horseshit. You know, it doesn't really work that way in the real world. And if you're going to make a mark on this globe, you know, you got you got to make some sacrifices. It's hard work. To, to, put it is a, hard work. to put a dent in the universe is hard work. Yeah, to put a dent in the universe, it's it, you got to expend energy, and energy is hard work. And you know, there there are th- some things I regret. You know, time I spent away from my family. I mean, my first two years at Apple, I practically lived there. Uh, there's a there's a couple of years of my son's life I just I do not recall. And I truly regret that. Well, listen. And now that I've depressed everybody. It ain't over yet. Let's, (laughs) let's, let's end this way. First of all, we've mentioned the blog. If you're not aware of Don Melton before this episode, I don't, what's wrong with you, but um, check out his blog, donmelton.com. Also, um, you're a somewhat prolific podcaster. You're all over a bunch of podcasts. So, uh, Oh yeah, on uh, on uh, iMore's network uh, originally mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on various debug episodes, and 
uh, Renee Rich and I have our own show that is strangely called Melton, even though I think of it as our show. Well, and you, uh, you've even done like uh, a TV uh, recap, or well, didn't you do like a Westworld? Couple yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. on the Incomparable Network. I'm co-host of on um, with uh, Kelly Guymont. She's the host. She's the boss, and I'm her minion. Uh, and we have a Westworld podcast that we did. The first season, and now we're in the middle of recording episodes for the rewatch because it's going to be over a year, god damn it, mm. between seasons. You got to remind uh, people. And, yeah, and I'm also on, uh, thanks to Jason Snell and the Incomparable Network, I'm on some other Incomparable Network shows. In fact, on Monday, um, I recorded uh, a random Trek episode. Um I'm super. Uh, I'm super jealous. I want to be on that show so badly, but you know, random Trek. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll put in a good word with. Uh, okay. Hey, by the way, so, if if you have not heard of it, the I well, I don't want to say it's better than Random Trek, but if you haven't heard of the Greatest Generation, um, a couple of guys that uh, are just going through every episode of of TNG. It oh is, really? It is my complete obsession it's the one podcast that i can't wait for every single week oh wow well that's uh to your warning you said in 79 78 78 yeah 78 so, right. so that was uh, that was your formative years oh when yeah, the show yeah, was oh, yeah. On. T- tng is my trick yeah yeah i'm uh i'm old enough to have actually watched live the original series <laughs> <laughs> So, so that, uh, but I, I, I adopted, uh, the next generation when it came around, that was a, that was a long, uh, time between drafts of water as it were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I remember those days, but, uh, Oh, you know, what's funny. I just, uh, see now I'm even more pissed. I, I, I thought Christina Warren was on the incomparable network also. And cause she's going to be my guest next week. And I'm looking around. Oh, but... Christina's your kid. Oh, she's just fantastic. Well, she's been on before. Uh, she's coming back uh, uh, to talk about um, uh, um, SoundCloud, of all things. But um, I'm, I, so I looked her up just now, and God damn it, she did the Darmok episode of Random Trek. Like, come on. Uh, that's uh, that's a great one to have the uh, the the way the dials uh, uh, rolled for. Uh, for me, Scott McNulty, you know, mm-hmm, right, rolled right. the dial for me, and uh, I got uh, I got episode uh, eight of season two. Ah, okay, so which still... is when, yeah, which is uh, very early on. This is the one where Riker is on the first officer of the Klingon ship. Oh yeah, that's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. It's not the best. My favorite episode of season two is episode nine. You know what that is? No, right? no, no. That's where you know Data. It's the measure of a man. Wait, which one is uh, yeah, that? Uh, the measure of a man is episode nine. It, Boy, it, if there was a trek I wanted to do, it was that one. That's where the guy comes to disassemble oh, him. Right, right, right. And he has it's like a, a lawyer Picard has to argue for for yeah, data. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. And Riker, uh, uh, lawyer Riker, has to argue against it because he's like oh, doomed right. for that. <laughs> It's a fantastic episode, well, but listen, I didn't get that one. I didn't by get the that way, one. see, see, you have to, you have to look up the Greatest Generation because, yeah, I know that they covered that one too. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> listen now, now I don't know if if my audience is tuning me out now because <laughs> uh, we've gone into Trek territory. But okay, listen, everybody, uh, Don Melton, as you can tell, is fantastic. So look him up. <laughs> look him up on the internet, 
And uh, Don. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter. Oh, right, at, right, yeah. And yeah, it, you may be. It may be hard to find me because it's at Don Melton mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at Twitter. Hard to find me. Um, but uh, and ask me anything. I don't. I don't care. Don, thank you uh, for me for for coming on uh, and and giving us just a fantastic episode and and remembering all that great stuff. Oh, it was it was my pleasure. I am Brian. I uh, I am truly honored that anybody is interested in this kind of stuff and listens to me. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you for your wonderful email that you sent and setting this up. And if you ever want to have uh, Motormouth on your show again, yeah, you know where to find me. You know what? Uh, well, look, Christina's coming back for, for round two. So uh, And, and uh, Mike Slade's been on. Glenn's been on twice. So, yes, hey, you never know. <laughs> Well, I gotta, I gotta do more glinning then. So, you, you, okay. you, might, you, you might regret making that offer. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out: rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.